I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch is casually exploring ways in which we can make the failure of a podcast into a success in a sort of roundabout financial way. Patreon money is 100% of the 100% of the profits. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought you might do something like don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the We Love to Watch podcast party. <laughs> we'll be watching uh, uh, Ninja 2, Do- Ninja 3 Domination this weekend or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. where we love to watch for movie podcasts, we pick a theme, we do movies over the course of a month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our new month! We have months again! Still picked a month where we think there's going to be a little bit short episodes before we get into March, and what we call uh, Hardcore Mode, mm-hmm. which is where we go berserk. We're going to go berserk. Do, we're going to go berserk. Uh, we're going to do uh, 22 episodes on all of the berserk episodes <laughs> from the 90s TV show. Uh, but no, uh, we're, we're, we're going to go back. We, we specifically chose the month that we're doing, which is Peter, uh, you, they couldn't make Blazing Saddles today because most of the principal cast is dead. Not Mel Brooks, who is in that movie. And as I learned through some research, i.e. the first thing that comes up on Wikipedia, did you know he's 97? He's the same age as my still living, uh, Grampy. Now, I was like, I mean, it's not like I was expecting 65, but... Uh, he served I, in World War II. I, if it would have said 89, my, yeah, my grandpa, who's still alive, is 97, who also served in World War II. Um, yeah, I see. He, uh, he's, he's doing really good for 97, I gotta say. He's still, like, he does interviews. You see him. He's he's doing great. Uh, he got an Emmy nomination for History of the World Part 2 the like narrator role um yeah. so he had the energy to voice an entire tv show like a year or two ago two years could ago. have been ai we don't know uh <laughs> not to introduce uh new conspiracies but we don't we've been talking about one of the long-term goals of this podcast is to do more comedy theme months and so mel brooks seemed like a really fun one to do and um even now i'm debating the choices that we made because i think there is a lot of good eras of mel brooks which is um he, you know, he kind of started doing stuff like the producers or creating the TV show Get Smart or, you know, not like not quite parodies, but like these kind of bigger spoofy uh, comedies. Um, and then he kind of did like tonal spoofs, which I would put like Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, Silent Movie, High Anxiety, where he's not like spoofing a movie, but he's spoofing like. The concept of silent movies or Hitchcockian thrillers. And then he kind of moved into more like, oh, we're doing Star Wars and we're doing Robin Hood and we're doing Dracula, like focusing on a movie spoof. But he has such a good career. He probably is. I've said this before, Peter, that like the three most relevant things to my sense of humor 
growing up were Mel Brooks, Monty Python, and Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like, you put all those in some sort of blender and you probably get what I find funny today, all the different permutations of it. Um, and so we, we're going to do we're going to do a few. And because they're comedies and because they're short, we're not going to we thought this would be a good chance to kind of dip in a little more like I do to in Club Aqua or Club Haunted House, for example, just dip in and talk about things where we don't have to turn into the Chris Farley show. Or we're just saying, remember that part? That was hilarious. That was hilarious. Talk a little bit about Mel Brooks as, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Why he is so relevant to comedy nerds or just movie go um, movie fans, comedy fans, uh, and talk about a few of his movies that are I think worth talking about for an hour to an hour and fifteen minutes. So we're doing the producers, we're doing Blazing Saddles, we're doing Young Frankenstein, uh, and we're doing. We had a real hard time on what's the other one because you're doing the Gene Wilder ones, right? And Blazing. Yeah. If you do Blazing Saddles, you kind of have to do Young Frankenstein because they're like if you're if you're going to talk about how the movies were made, that they're tied together so closely. Yeah, they and, came out in the same year. Yeah, and if you're going to talk about beginnings, you're not going to talk about like Twelve Chairs or whatever. You're going to want to yeah. talk. You're not going to want to cover a bunch of episodes of the Sid Caesar Show or something. You're going to want to talk about the or producers. when things were rotten. Yeah, because it's it's really interesting how his career had a big circle. But you're right, picking number four was kind of a back and forth for us because like he we basically were like, is it we is liked. it space? Yeah, is it Spaceballs or is it Robin Hood Men in Tights? Which I think are probably the two movies of his that I thought were the funniest when I was in junior high, and I probably haven't revisited since I was in high school because I recognized I think the last time I watched both of those that they were funny. But maybe a little lazy. Um, and I think Spaceballs is the better one of those two. But there's a part of me that makes me think that maybe if we feel like we are really up for it, that we do both of those and just talk about his later day parodies. Because I kind of want to do Robin Hood Men in Tights. And I cannot imagine another month that we would fit in Robin Hood Men in Tights. We already did Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. We're not going to... We're not going to do like movie parody, movie parody, but we we um, did do we did do a John Carpenter B sides month, so you know I could see us coming back. But are are you that excited to talk about history of the world and high anxiety for an hour? So I mean, I really I really like so history of the world. I loved when I was younger. Um, High anxiety and silent movie I thought were good, but I I actually think I may get more out of high anxiety. I only watched both of them once, and it was in in high school. I think I'd probably get more out of High Anxiety now because I don't think I'd seen any Hitchcock movies when I watched mm. High Anxiety. Mm. So um, I probably didn't get a lot out of it. And like the and, and maybe even silent movie because I don't know if I'd seen any silent movies when I saw silent movie. And um, so if it's more if it's more a specific parody of it, I may of like the the, the actual silent movie era as opposed to just the chutzpah to do a uh, – silent movie in 1977 um where only the mime uh speaks the only line of dialogue um uh yeah i don't know it's but i but i don't think i'd have that much to say i you know i don't think they're so fondly remembered um i do feel like men in tights and space balls are more fondly remembered for our generation who like grew up and found the you know well robin hood men in tights came out when i was 10 like i saw the previous for it on television i was like oh my God, do I want to see this movie? I loved Robin Hood, Prince and Thieves. And I was like, what is this? You know, I and, and I I think if we're going to like start at Mel Brooks, I do think um, while the producers obviously does not fall into this category, I do think that probably the, the first 
time you found out what a well, that parodies were a thing may have been for Mel Brooks. I know it was for me. It was Robin Hood Men in Tights. I, I remember that I discovered Spaceballs. I didn't see Star Wars until I was in junior high. And then I found out Spaceballs existed. And I was like, that's amazing. Oh, by the guy that did Robin Hood Men in Tights. But Robin Hood Men in Tights came out when I was uh, 10. Robin Hood Prince of Thieves was one of the first big blockbusters that I remember being like, I just absolutely need to see this because – the, I mean, I read Robin Hood books when I was in elementary school and kindergarten, and then they made this giant Robin Hood movie that, of course, I wanted to see, and the action figures were amazing, uh, and everything else that just made made a eight- or nine-year-old want to see it. And then all of a sudden, they're doing Robin Hood again, and it's a comedy, and it's just joking about that movie. And, like, I remember seeing the movie when it came – not in theaters, but when it came out on video, and just, like – like a fucking I think you should leave skit like I didn't know you could do that like uh and I do think like the concept of parody and your first exposure to it is is a moment for a lot of people of like wait you can just make the same movie but just kind of make fun of it the whole time and do the same plot like I didn't know that that was possible it was like a fucking you know, the what's the meme of, like, the mind-blowing yeah, stuff? Yeah. Like, it was like, I didn't know you could do this. The galaxy um, and brain I, thing? Yeah, yeah. And that's that was that was Mel, Mel Brooks is the, the person who introduced me to the concept of a parody. And Robin Hood Men in Tights was the first thing I ever saw that was like, this is amazing that they're, that this is – you're allowed to do this, that someone came up with this idea. Yeah. I think that I am fortunate in that older people in my life – um, introduced me to the concept of a parody film uh, through the early work of the Zucker, the Zaz, Zucker, Abram Z- uh, Zucker, and Mel Brooks, that young Frankenstein, Airplane, Spaceballs, um, and Robin Hood Men in Tights, um, and may- maybe Top Secret at that age. But those were the but first hold ones on. that I saw. Can I ask you something about that? So if I saw Naked Gun in third grade. I saw it before Robin Hood Man in Tights came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was one of the funniest movies I'd ever seen. But I didn't know it was a parody because I didn't see those. Like, I, I just thought it was a funny comedy where people were acting stupid. I didn't realize it was a parody of, like, 50s and 60s cop TV shows. I didn't understand it as a concept. And so, like, I, I can believe that you – like – I can believe you saw Airplane and saw, thought this is a very funny movie, but I doubt you were watching Airport 75 or yeah, whatever. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so I, I, more, I guess what I'm trying to get is like so the, the thing is I had seen – I knew that they were parodying disaster, air, okay. very serious, things are going wrong. Like maybe I'd seen Air Force One or something. Like I knew that they were parodying something – that existed and was very serious and there was a genre and it felt like a real movie just uh, flipped 180. I was very lucky to have seen those movies and been introduced to those movies. And Spaceballs, I'd obviously, I saw Star Wars when I was like four, right? So um, those movies first because in my junior high era Mm -hmm. uh, is when uh, the scary movie franchise really took off. I don't even, I haven't even seen the first one since I was a kid. I don't know if, like, it was good and then got bad. I, I saw it in theaters, that. yeah. That's the age difference, because I was 17 when that came out, so I was very familiar with it. Yeah, 
with those, yeah. I, and those came out, and then um, the, is it Friedberg and Seltzer and Friedberg? Oh, the date movie. I mean, we cover not another teen movie kind yeah. of on the show. And, and so those movies came out, which are almost all, almost all unanimously um, just awful. La- yeah, they're lazy. They are. They're lazy. But they're like, they can't even commit to like a genre or a single movie. Yeah. They are like, they call 300 gay and yeah. then they're like, fuck, what other jokes do we make about 300? And then they move on to uh, to making fun of Paris Hilton, right? Like, yeah. those those movies are awful. I'm very lucky that that concept of parody is not poisoned in me. Because, yeah. like, I did go to the theater and watch whatever the fuck I could watch at the time. And most of those movies are, by today's standards, unwatchable trash. Uh, I was exposed to, like... Robin, uh, Robin Hood and Spaceballs and such very early on. And it made me love Mel Brooks because I was like, who the fuck is this weird guy with the funny voice? He's doing like a Yoda parody and like people, you could see his name up at the top of the movie, uh, big letters. I didn't know what a director was or a director did. Um, and (coughs) I still, I still think I don't quite know what a director does, but you know. Uh, this far into the Indirect. podcast, it's hard to it's hard to hard to say, um, but Mel Brooks as a figure entered into my life in a very young yeah. way, which is very weird because he's like barely in he's in he's in Spaceballs in in multiple roles. He's barely in Blazing Saddles, and he's not in Young Frankenstein. I don't think, except for as a narration role. Like, uh, no, well, the, he's, he's not I mean, the star in the way, like, I didn't see not, High Anxiety at 12, right? He's not in the producers. Well, I mean, he said that he only cast himself after Gene Wilder stopped being available for him to work with. Like, so it is, it is like Gene Wilder does these movies with him and then he leaves and Mel Brooks is like, well, I know, I kind of know what I want in these characters. And if Gene Wilder's not going to do it, I'm going to play him. So, yeah. Um, but then he's not in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, or I, th- I think he has a small part in Dracula Dead and Loving It. But he's he's uh, a main character in Dracula Dead and Loving It, and I don't recall a, his role in it, the size of his role in Robin Hood. I just watched Dracula Dead and Loving It. Oh, I guess he is in Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He's just not the he's not the lead. I know you just watched that. Dra- Dracula Dead and Loving It was if if uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights was like they can do this. Dracula Dead and Loving It, seeing it a few years later, was like they shouldn't do this. <laughs> Uh, that it was also, that was a it, thing I love can be bad. It is also one like, of those movies that's one of the first times I remember being like, "Oh, he should have made this uh, when he made Young Frankenstein. He was really good when he made Young Frankenstein." So I yeah, think that's also well, the, part of the arc, especially as we talk about the producers, which is that um, vibrant young voice, essentially like a comedy workaholic from the moment yeah. he got out of the service. He went and did Catskills stand-up comedy. Yeah. And the Sid Caesar show, and he kind of just busted his ass on the way up. Yeah. Um, and then he got to make uh, producers, which t- should well, be Well, before noted. that, he created uh, Get Smart, co-created Yes, Get he Smart. co-created uh, Get Smart with Buck Henry. So he yeah. kind of, at this point, was like, you know, for for producers and such, <laughs> you know, he, he had gotten around town. But he was not a household name the way he was by the time I was watching Spaceballs. Um, but, uh, the producers came out and the producers was needed, uh, art film distribution, um, barely made any money, um, which is very funny now because very, yeah, very mixed critical reaction. Like Colleen, like fucking, a lot of people fucking hated it. Yes. Um, 
But it was nominated for two Academy Awards. It, it and won one. It, yeah, it won um, best original screenplay. I know. Yeah, which I know. Is Mel Brooks a, won quite a coup. Um, yeah, and Gene Wilder was nominated. Like the, you know, comedies are always challenging. But it was his. It was Gene Wilder's second film role after a small part in Bonnie and Clyde, where he was yeah. not playing a, com- a comedic character. Yes, exactly. And Gene Wilder is just incredible right off the incredible bat in this movie. In, in this movie. Um, I did watch the 2005 producers just to familiarize myself with sort of the arc of this. Thing. I saw it when it came out. Yeah. Uh, we'll so bad. It. It, it, we'll talk about it. Um, so it's very interesting to talk about this movie as sort of a frame of his career because um, it's not that he stopped doing things after 2001, but... It's that he had a film era that kicks off with the producers, and it has some highs, it has some lows. really hits its peak in the mid-70s in terms of notoriety and respect and money. Um, and then... It starts, and he did cool things like produce The Fly and Elephant Man. Yes, with all he had cachet to get David yeah. Lynch in office on the lot. Like, you know, that kind yeah. of shit. Yeah. And then by the time the 90s kind of came to a close, it's not that he was like a has-been, but... You know, people's times come and go. And uh, then he had this moment where he got to return to the beginning of his career, this movie that was sort of a, not a critical darling, but sort of a cult hit. And then he got to come back around, rework the concept of the producers into a Broadway fucking hit. And it became something that you couldn't get tickets to for years. It was the Hamilton of its day. Yeah. Which is why I was so excited for the movie version, because especially as a kid in college who loved the original movie and knew that this was like the biggest thing in the world and it was a joke about how you couldn't get tickets to it, it was like, thank God they're making a movie so I have a, a way to see it. But And the movie, while the producers, uh, was eventually franchised out to various uh big city uh, musical companies and eventually you know would even even make it smaller um by the time it got it was it debuted in 2001 by the time the movie came out in 2005 there's a decent chance where you lived um was not getting a substantial version of it being produced and by 2005 you were getting this served up this thing that you've been told for four years was the funniest thing thing on a fucking stage and that uh, the next play that comes up on that stage is going to be funnier because fucking comedy juice is soaked in the boards yeah (laughs) and and like it's very funny because the producers that we're talking about today 1967 is in many ways an audacious young announcement of a of a new comedy voice but in other ways it's a like, it feels like the movies that Matt Tri- Matt, and, Matt Stone and Trey Parker were making at the beginning of, of their career, the little shorts. Like, it feels like it's, like, it's rude, but it gets in and it gets out of your face. It, it's does, kind it of, does the thing and it get, goes away. This is a sub-90-minute comedy that does not want to waste a fucking second of your time. It is actually, like, insane how this movie is structured. The opening scene is 25 minutes long. You can see why some. I mean, it, so he did initially what he was. It was originally called Springtime for Hitler. Mm-hmm. He had terrible time getting financing. There were even <laughs> studios. There's even studios that said, "I love the script, but we'll, we won't buy it unless you change it to Springtime for Mussolini." That's a real thing. Real thing that happened. Um, and also, he considered making it a a play, going straight to the stage. 
Um, and he said he also considered he wasn't sure if he wanted to do it as a movie or a play. He said he was figuring it out and basically was shopping it around. Yeah, and he also considered just doing the springtime for Hitler part and just doing that on stage. Like, I'm going to make a comedy musical about Hitler. He has this very funny quote, which is such a like a Mel Brooks quote where he's like i was never crazy about hitler (laughs) if you stand on a soapbox and trade rhetoric with a dictator you never win that's what they do so well they seduce people but if you ridicule them bring them down with laughter they can't win you show how crazy you are um uh but like it he 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 knew he wanted to do this thing where it was like ridiculing hitler but there was a point where it, it like early early versions of this which go back to 1962 he was talking about just doing springtime for Hitler. And then he had this idea of like, what if he, he was like, how could I ever make springtime for Hitler? It would be a disaster. And he had this idea of doing like this play within a play. So the, the movie is structured like so interestingly that it's, it's, you're right. It's 88 minutes long. The first 25 minutes is one scene in the office. Then there's, what is it? 35 minutes of them putting the play together, getting the writer getting the director, getting the cast. And then it's 25 minutes of the play and then a five-minute, like, ending work, uh, epilogue almost of, like, what happens after the, their plan fails. So it's it really is, like, in a, in a way, it really is feels like it's built for st- uh, stage because you have, like, the middle second act that kind of goes around to different places. But the first and the third act are basically, like, in real-time scenes that are happening uh, within the play and the um, and in the office. Now, before we get too far into that, though, Peter, one of the things I said that we should have like as a barometer this month is: is this movie still funny? And that doesn't mean that you don't love it. Or and I said this with young. Well, <clears throat> um, I think Young Frankenstein is a movie that I love. I actually rewatched it recently for uh, Swamp Flicks when we did all the Frankenstein movies. Um, Young Frankenstein is a movie that I love. I enjoy watching. It's amazing. It is not a movie that I'm laughing at. And I, I literally mean, does this movie make you laugh um, anymore? There's things that I think are clever or funny. And it's, again, it's a fantastic movie. It serves as a comedic, almost straight Frankenstein sequel. We'll talk about it. But I do think sometimes when you go back to these movies from the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s that, like, um, felt like they were laugh-out-loud funny at the time, just comedy ends up warming over. And there's there's some movies from these eras that I still laugh at a lot, like Laugh Out Loud, and there's some that I'm like, oh, man, I love that. Like, that is such a warm little hug of a movie. So I think I do want to talk about, like, does this movie actually, like, make you laugh? Or these Mel Brooks movies that we're talking about make you laugh um, today in 2024? Um, but I especially want to get to that part first because, Peter, you've never seen this movie until now. And I had said that when I saw it, I saw it a couple times and I always respected it and I really liked it. But it, it didn't hold a candle to me at the time for stuff like Blazing Saddles or Spaceballs. And I haven't seen this movie in probably 15 or 20 years. You probably have the more surprising opinion because you've never seen it. I'm really excited about that. So I'll just say I was surprised how much I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't just respect it. I fucking loved it more than I think I loved it when I saw it in high school and college. And I was laughing quite a lot. This movie, a movie that I already had rated five stars in letterbox because I was important and I respected it. I actually think for the first time, like I actually fell in love 
with it this time, and I think it's fucking hilarious. I I, I was amazed by this. So, uh, I didn't have, like, an over-the-moon reaction to it, but I absolutely think it's a fucking funny movie. I do not think this is uh, going to be our takedown of uh, of Mel Brooks' month. Uh, no, I didn't like, mean surprise, it like surprise. Again, I didn't mean it like that. But yeah. yes, yes, yes. But, I mean, jumping over to the thing you said about Young Frankenstein, like, that's a movie that I, I laugh at. I don't laugh every minute, but, like, I still laugh at. The reason that I laugh at it is actually similar to the reason that I laugh at the producers, which is that, like, even if the joke itself, as written, I think, you know, maybe hasn't aged well. And I don't even mean offensive. Like, yeah. even if the, the joke uh, is just not... Just the cat like, skills tone, yeah. Yes. The, 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 or the just, you've heard versions of this joke, which isn't yeah, fair to the original product, because the original thing that Mel Brooks... Well, produced, also, Mel Brooks does the same jokes over and over yes, in yes. too, so... He's, he hasn't certainly helped himself, but... Yeah. Um... The joke has been told a zillion billion times. Versions of those jokes have been told a zillion billion times. Um, the you know you uh, can I just talk to you for a minute and you know he's actually pulled out a stopwatch to talk to him and and whatever. Yeah, that's actually actually let me let me pause on that one. That's a good example of what I'm talking about. That joke I've seen it a zillion times. It's in every shitty sitcom. It's sort of like yeah. the. Um, Christmas Carol being in every sitcom. Like, there's a version yeah. of that joke, like, yeah, you know how to talk to me for a minute? Here's a minute. Like, they don't always use a stopwatch, but you know what I mean. And I think that's it, because performances live on as a funny, yeah. comedic thing that, like, makes me laugh. Even when the joke text itself isn't that vibrant yeah. and new and fresh. And there's things that Gene Wilder is doing in this movie, and there's things that Gene Wilder is doing in Young Frankenstein and, and Marty Feldman and yada yada. There's yeah. things that they're doing that are just so inherently just tickle me Good. that, like, I don't... What the text is obviously matters because the text is what the text is. It's the bones of the thing. But, like, uh, like I don't particularly think Gene Wilder walking in on... Um, uh, Zero Mustel as, uh, <laughs> actually, you know what? Let me, let me take a step back. I don't think Bloom walking in on <laughs> Bialystok is, 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 while he's, uh, banging an old lady. It's like that particularly funny. Like, you know, it's not yeah. like a joke that's particularly aged well for whatever reason. But the nervous way that Gene Wilder is introduced to us and his weird little eek noises that he makes. Yeah. And then and then, she's, and then Bialy has to go, like, do you mean oops? <laughs> and then he says oops, and he says oops and get out. Like, the, yeah. this this sort of back and forth yeah. of, of the performances is really the, the reason that this is still vibrant and funny. Because the jokes itself... It's so a, a robot would look at a lot of these jokes and be like, you saw a funnier, ver updated version of this joke on 30 Rock. Like, uh, like, that is, yeah, it is, it not is the shocking to me that that, but like Gene Wilder can make something that is like kind of cringe and uncomfortable in the, the yeah. producer's 2005 movie. Gene Wilder can make it like, uh, him yelling and talking about his blue blanket and make it like genuinely like touch me yeah. somewhere deep down in a way that's like I know I I didn't know was possible. My favorite part is still the um and the funniest part that makes me laugh out loud. And I I this was always my favorite part when I watched it prefer, before too is when he's like uh when he gets hysterical he's like I'm hysterical I'm hysterical ah you know that performance so great and and uh a Bielstock throws the water on him and he's just like there's like a perfect amount of time in the beat I'm wet <laughs> I'm hysterical and I'm wet it's so goddamn 
Good. But I do I I do think um what is interesting about this movie is how the culture has flown right past this as offensive. Like it is funny how in 1968 this was considered like almost untouchable. Critics were like, yeah, maybe we don't joke about Hitler guys and like even even if it's coming from a place of ridicule and and everything else which is kind of funny because they're it's so funny how they drew that line because fucking chaplin did the great dictator and everyone loved it like like it, during the war so the idea of like you can't go back 20 years like it's just, it's just kind of a weird like amnesia i think where it's like well maybe we shouldn't be making light of hitler it's also we're America's. a different generation we were making 9-11 jokes by 2003 but that's but yeah but that is what's so funny is that like in not to say 9-11 and the Holocaust are the same thing. Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, they're both hilarious for different reasons. <laughs> so, they're not. But it is but it is it is uh funny how our I don't know if it's like millennials or Gen Z, and maybe it's because of things like Mel Brooks, I think really did internalize that concept that Mel Brooks is talking about, where it's like, you know using humor to make jokes around not about the holocaust or about 9-11 in the sense that like it was a tragedy but around the ridiculousness that surrounds um either the tragedy or the perpetrators of those chat tragedy and like using it to because you're right like the idea of like that hitler being a uh, subject to uh, too terrible for joking is like people make Hitler joke. We had to remind we made Hitler into and Nazis into so much of a cultural joke that when they started to make a big comeback in like 2015, 2016, we had to remind everyone that Nazis were real, were bad. And that like, yes, we've been making Nazi jokes for a long time, guys. But like these are this is now actually getting getting serious again. Like that's how much our culture had turned into like nazis and hitler as primarily a comedic <laughs> influence from like i don't know or just lay up bad guys you know like that we had yeah. turned them into comic yeah. or comic book sort of figures so what i'll say here is 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 that um i think that talking about 2015 2016 is a thing that i'd love to talk about for just a little bit but not a lot of it yeah like the post-Trump comedy revolt thing was uh, very interesting because it genuinely broke a lot of people's brains that Trump could actually <laughs> win. Someone. We talked about this before, but one specific person that broke their brain was Jon Stewart, who is now returning to The Daily Show, I guess. Yeah. Jon Stewart, both fairly and unfairly, became the whipping boy of the left, who, uh, when... We were having this moment of just shame and indignation that, like, we had not done enough to stop truly the worst candidate yeah. in the past hundred years. I don't know, 150 years. Uh, that uh, we were making smug liberal jokes on our TV and we were making fun of him and making bits about this guy that is truly dangerous and truly had an yeah. adverse effect on the lives of many, many Americans, right? Um, and may, again, I don't know. Yeah. And... Uh, that like, but like the really 
I do think we course corrected too much, though, after 2016. I think there were too many people that were like, you know who really needs to come to Jesus? Comedians. You need to stop making, you need to stop making silly little jokes about our enemies. And you need to make true, hard, hard-hitting, factual jokes. Like, I feel like I even, even in my circles on, like, you know, like, the, the lefty side really had trouble sorting out, like, People that are further to the left of John, the John Stewart types really had trouble sorting out how to process the Trump win. And this, the producers, feels like a specific, specific mode of comedy that I think is sort of, it's, it's a perfect icon of a type of mode of comedy, which is like, hey, if you hate someone, don't get in a mud wrestling match with them. Yeah. Just find all the things about them that are ridiculous, and then they're going to spend so long just scrambling around trying to get their footing again that, like, you've already won the day. Don't fucking bother arguing with Nazis. And I, you know, that is also a thing, like, in a broader sense. Like, yeah. you can't treat Nazis like a legitimate part of the democratic process because their entire process is to take apart the democratic process. Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. That being said, I think the producers is like, oh, is in a weird, you're right. It, the, the culture wars kind of sailed over it because it's in a weird position where like, I think it's, it's like a beautiful indication of like, uh, Jewish people processing grief. Yeah. Right. But also Jewish people being like, here's fuck you. But in a way that like only I can say, fuck you. Right. Like, yeah. It is a political statement. Most of Mel Brooks's work, most of Mel Brooks's work is ends up being some sort of political statement about something. And yeah. I think that this thing is is interesting in particular post-2016 because I think the comedy world kind of ate its own tail. And I don't really know where it lands right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think some of that's true. I still think people were making Hitler jokes post-2016. I just think that people had to remind people, like, Nazis are not just funny. Like, that's – it was that weird thing where it's like they'd just been so – because they were they were non-relevant. And so they could be used as a punching bag. Um, and I, But I don't think anyone would see this – for what it's worth, I don't think anyone like would see this in 2020. It's like – and go – Now's not the time for Nazi jokes, guys. Like no. I, I think, the, but I, I actually think, like in that way, it's almost us. Uh, it's quaint how unoffensive it is as a Nazi-based comedy oh, about yeah. a- Adolf Hitler. Like it, the and, and offense rarely lasts generationally. But this was such a weird uh, black, uh, like the the way that so many comedian or uh, critics handled this movie was like, I just can't believe anyone would do this. It's so funny to see in 2024 when it's like, this, there's literally nothing <laughs> here. Um, and, uh, and, and the stuff that is, is so like adorably cute. Like I love, um, I love the scene in the play where Hitler um, is having a bad time, so he calls his little buddy that makes him feel better, Joseph Goebbels, and he they come in and he's like, uh, "Yeah, I told him that the war was won in against London." They're like, "How did everyone take that?" They loved it. Oh man, that's why I love this little guy. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like it's so uh, it's so good, and I uh, the actor who plays Hitler, uh, Dick Sean, uh, who is basically in. Uh, well, he, he plays LSD, Lorenzo St. Du Bois. Uh, He's supposed to be sort of like a beatnik, you know, bohemian type guy that has like a rock, a 60s rock band. <laughs> and that and that they make like, uh, I don't know, like a, uh, 
They make like this jazzy dude play Hitler, and he has absolutely zero gravitas for the part, yeah. and so he ends up making Hitler look like this like foibleish. Clown. And he's just making up lines and saying "baby" the whole time. Uh, I really like what's funny. Oh, yeah, I, he's winging. He's like, "Why would I attack Germany? All my friends <laughs> live there." Like he's just <laughs> yeah, winging it. He's just he's just riffing the whole time. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of like is this offensive or not? Whatever. <laughs> um, is that the title of this month um, references a common refrain, usually by conservative dickheads. It says, like, you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today. And sometimes it's said, you know, like, well-meaning by people being, like, used to be able to joke about stuff, and now you can't. But it's largely conservative dickheads who are, like, to use that as a talking point. Like, we used to be able to tell jokes in this country. And I really, really want this to be a month where we get to talk about how <laughs> Like, everything that you think was controversial in the past was controversial. <laughs> and that there was, and that, like, people got mad about all of this stuff, and reviewers called things that you love fascist, and that people weren't dumb to the, the, the ideas that you have. People were not naive in the past and simple. Um, it's just that a prevailing sense of... Um, a prevailing sense of consensus emerges sometimes eventually, like, uh, especially with things like the producers where it's like, it wasn't a movie that was like a broad hit among all audiences. It, was it like, wasn't a I, hit at all. It was a hit among college students. It, it was, and it's considered Academy a cult classic. It yes. had a budget of a million dollars and it made $1.4 million. Yes. Like precisely. that is not a, that is not a hit. Precisely. Uh, it was it was a, a, a cultural a cultural touchstone touchstone thing. Uh it eventually came back around to a time where we were, I guess, feeling um, you know strong enough as a as a country that we could um, you know, make fun of neo Nazis. Um but uh the like the thing that it's like that idea of them saying, like, why can't we have nice, wholesome music like Elvis Presley? It's like, you know that everyone hated him. They literally was like, you're shaking your hips. I don't like it. Like, I mean, it, it, you're, you're 100% right that it's just so out of line with, like, the cultural conversations at the time. And it's looking at things that have been warmed over and people get used to it through time. Uh, and that is what it is. People just get used to it. And so they're like, well, I saw the producer as a kid. My dad showed it to me. I've never heard anyone say that the producers or Blazing Saddle was offensive. It's like, yeah, because you missed the conversation when those movies came out. Like, you are, you are, it's like, again, I think Elvis is the a great reference point. Like, people refer to Elvis when they complain about rap music and there's these people that are like, why can't we just have nice music like I grew up with, with like Elvis or something? It's like, people thought he was going to make everyone have sex. Like, that that was the like you have to build like you don't go from Elvis Elvis and Public Enemy didn't exist at the same time and they're like comparing and contrasting and going well given the choice I guess I'd rather have my teenage daughters listen to Elvis like it's a progression of like what societal norms are what's offensive to the time and so and conservatism yeah, is that... basically just marketing um, people that have no. have sort of a they just um, they just want their their memory of how things used to exist to, yes. to be reality. It's yeah. nostalgia Fantastic. plus a distrust of the future and finding a way that you can sell that to people 
while you're taking away their basic rights. Um, well, that's but, conservative. And I mean, here's the thing. The stuff that was offensive when this movie came out and people had a problem with was the Hitler stuff. Nobody thinks that that's offensive in the context of this movie anymore. The stuff that you could say, and this will be true of like Blazing Saddles and other things. um, I think this movie has a very low level of misogyny for a 1960s comedy. It exists, but I actually think the... um, I actually think a lot of the uh, the Ula stuff is actually pretty funny and pretty tame. Um, uh, but like the two the two biggest things that we would find like questionable in this one are like in in from a modern sensibility are the the fat jokes about uh, Zero Mostel when when Gene Wilder's just like find, doesn't know how to insult him and just starts screaming fat fat. You're fat. And even that, I think, is a little bit like... And uh, maybe a He's little bit like of like... He's having like a the... nervous breakdown. It's like not... It's not quite um, somebody having a cutting barb yeah. about a 15-year-old girl. Right? It's 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 yeah. a... It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's two people that have gone down a, a moral guilt spiral. <laughs> that now they're just... He's just like raving and screaming yeah. whatever he can to make this guy mad. And then, uh, and then a little bit of the like... I... And this is very common in a lot of Mel Brooks movies, the idea of like, oh, is that person gay? <laughs> um, but I actually, th- yeah. which is Roger, uh, Christopher Hewitt, who plays the director, who I actually think is very funny in this movie, too, just because he's so enthusiastic and so so into the movie. Even that, like, even in comparison to other Mel Brooks movies, where, I mean, even Robin Hood Men in Tights makes, like, I think it has, like, some F slurs and some other stuff in it, like... Um, you know, I actually think like on the spectrum of like homophobic jokes from the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, I actually think this is kind of like mild and not it, it is, is not like a, it's not like hold your nose and be like, fuck, I'm going to have to fast forward that part at some point when I show it to my kid. Like, it's not that it does grind the movie to a halt where jokes that you can actually laugh at um, stop happening. <laughs> Um, cause I think most of the introduction of debris, you're like, is this going to get worse? You're like, it's already got some like, uh, transphobic, uh, quote unquote dudes in dress kind of jokes. Uh, it's already got two guys that are lisping, uh, homosexual stereotypes. Mm-hmm. What, like how much further down can we go? Like, I kind of just like, I kind of just cringed that part. It's, it's, it's not funny. Cause the entire joke is basically like aren't these guys really gay like it's not there's well, not like so there's like a it's not that they are two guys with um lispy gay accents making funny bits almost all the punchlines during that entire introduction sequence are isn't it funny that gay guys exist and that part i feel like is it's not that it's not there's aren't worst offenders in that era. And honestly, I watched the 2005, the producers, and like, it's not as offensive. It's embarrassing in a different way. I can't quite yeah. come up with the term for what it is in the 2005 one. It's a sort of like, we can't just be normal about the fact that we're not bigoted anymore. So we're going to come back around and only celebrate stereotypes. Matthew Broderick yeah. emerges after meeting Debris in the 2005 one with a boa around his neck. Does that say what that 
Is that enough? Yeah, I, think, in... I think I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry came out in 2005. Yes. It, all, it yeah. also reminds me of, in, I think, 2007 or 2008 in Sex and the City 2. They were just like, the two gay guy characters that hated each other in the show, they're married now. They can kiss. And it, it, it feels like a... It feels like a straight person was like, you know what would be great is if all the gay guys could get married. <laughs> I, I, I just saying like there's different levels of offense and, yeah. and standards change over time. I'm going to say both neither version of the producers does well in either regard. So I mean, this is damning with faint praise, but uh, here's why I think that on the continuum of homophobic, transphobic stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I guess even early 2000s. It doesn't totally derail the movie for those five minutes for me. One, I think Christopher Hewitt's performance is, as the director of this movie, not, forget about the other stuff, I think he is legitimately funny as how enthusiastic about the project he is. Which is, I think that part of the joke is very funny. They go to this guy, he's like, he's the worst fucking director in the world, Let's just hope he's like, we'll sign on to something called Springtime for Hitler. And so they're going worried that he's going to be like, I don't know if I could do this. And he's like, of course, this is the greatest script I've ever read. This is a story that needs to be told. And he starts throwing out even bigger ideas. Uh, I think that of just being like aggressively enthusiastic about the worst fucking idea that, you know, everyone's having. I think that is really, really funny. The um, idea that he has no good taste, and so they don't have to talk him into doing this. They, 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 they were worried they were going to have to talk him into it, and he's just like, oh my god, I love it. Like, that is that is funny. They don't yeah, have to talk him that into is, it. That is a good bit. I'm not saying the character overall is an abject failure on every level. I'm just saying that entire introduction but, sequence is so, like, you're, like, so, wincing for them to say the F-slur. You're like, just, well, just so, say but it, that's just what get I, it out of the way. So that's what I would say. I think the part of it that makes it not uh, that that again, I'm, I'm grading this on quite the scale, and I'm not saying like it's 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 unnecessary. Uh, but they don't. I like that Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel don't comment on it at all. They're uncomfortable, and you're right. They're uncomfortable by the concept of a man wearing a dress, uh, gay men existing, you know that kind of thing. But they. Don't it's I think in every Mel Brooks, a lot of other Mel Brooks movies and definitely other comedies for the era, they are a little bit more like, hey, we can't just trust that these two people being in a weird, uncomfortable situation with people that are very, you know, are different than them is making them uncomfortable. They would make like a, uh, you know, what is he, some kind of F slur or something like that, which I, I'm. I think as we go through these Mel Brooks movies, I'm like 99% sure that we're going to hear him Blazing Saddles and, you know, maybe some of the other stuff too. So I think the fact that they don't explicitly say um, that they're gay and that that's gross and they're weirded out by it, they just act weird and they're being uncomfortable and hugging like them too. I think like on a scale of like 60s era homophobic jokes, I think it it actually is pretty pretty tame for how offensive some of these fucking movies were at the time even i think later mel brooks movies from in that perspective but to yeah. get back to the original point it's funny that like those people that are kind of being those like cultural arbitrators of offense it's like 
they they give room for things not becoming not offensive the idea that like what people those two those two things as far as i know were not the things that people called this movie vile and uh depraved and stuff like that they called it because of the hitler stuff and people give credence to the idea that things can become less offensive over time and i think it's so weirdly hypocritical for your prism to be like that to go like you are respecting the fact people can understand that the the hitler stuff was offensive and not offensive so you're you're recognizing the concept of societal norms can change but you only want to count it when it changes in a way in one way and not the other way which is so like weirdly hypocritical of course of course, like a movie from 1968 is going to have some things that may were deemed offensive. It's like a scary movie too. Like you can go back and say like there's there's movies that are like this is grotesque and gross as a horror movie that came out in the 70s. Then you watch it and like did I was there even any blood in it? And like the stuff, it's like no one finds that part of it offensive anymore. But you and you 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 attribute that to societal norms of like gore and depictions in movies and everything else changing and everyone goes that's great i love that this is not offensive in that way anymore why can't you accept the reverse being true of like yeah some things becoming different like some things that weren't concerning back then becoming uh, a lot more brought to light of like this sucks and this is shitty and this is mean and not funny um i just I, I i don't know something about that like just made me think that like it it's like why do you why can you only accept societal norms changing in one direction and not the other direction it's it it's yeah yeah i i i think it's i think it's a great question to ask i also think that this is this is a month where we're gonna be uh, at least i'm gonna be reading reviews of blazing saddles and yeah. such and i'm gonna be uh reading reviews of space balls in particular um because i want to know um kind of how they were taken in their time and what we're talking about with with the producers is that it did not arrive soundly with no offense i will say yeah. this movie on the sort of cultural tradition that leads to south park and it leads to book of mormon so south park is something that i had have some level of respect for but i think ultimately lost its way um and book of mormon which i think is like more or less a pretty solid success like um turning a a um a sort of i guess nuanced new atheist perspective on faith um into a very sweet movie about characters trying to figure out their place in the world. Like I, I think that Book of Mormon is generally functional. I, I've never seen it, but I, uh, I want to. It's, I mean, one of these times when a touring show comes around, I'd love to see. It. It's actually very surprising, like the way it's the the way it's written. It's I've, actually I've heard very that. surprising from the South Park guys. Um, I've heard that that even like uh, practicing Mormons really love it. So yes, the final message of it is not fuck Mormonism. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Um, or it's or it's not like, uh, hey guys, maybe caring about anything at all is stupid. Yes, <laughs> which is yes. like the last ten years of South Park. So those those are kind of on a cultural tradition, which is is sort of like let's let's um let's get a shock out there to make a political point um and say something about the uh, society today or say something about the culture, right? And that that you know cultural trajectory has many high points and many low points on it. I will say the theme of this that resonates with me more than it as, you know, this like straight line that leads through transgressive comedy and it leads through comedy central and adult swim. Like 
what I would actually rather talk about, because we talk about that stuff a lot, is that this is a movie that's, I think, to me, a way of talking about American greed and the downward spiral that it takes you on in a way that's funny and accessible. And it yeah. ends up being like a morality tale with zero finger wagging. It's a morality tale that's saying, hey, this is just how America works. This sort of failing upward kind of yeah. kind of thing. And the fact that it has a negative ending for the characters is, is I think, mostly driven by the fact that it's funnier. Um, it's funnier to watch them get hit. The, co- the, the court scene is so funny. I, I, I kind of, people forget about the court scene and even some modern reviews saying that even the lazy ending can't ruin what a funny movie it is. I actually think the court scene is hilarious. The idea that he goes on this uh, soapbox to be like, Hey, this guy is a monster, but who did he really hurt? All these women that he pleasured sexually, and they all like stand up and applied. And I love the uh, the line where he's like, "He called me Leo." I know that's not a big Leo, a uh, big legal point, <laughs> but it meant a lot to me. <laughs> and then to like jump cut to them in prison after that big speech is so, or smash cut or whatever. Yeah. Is so. And they, that's something that in the, the, the Broadway version and the 2005 version, um, I guess, I guess I should say 2001 version, 2005 film version, um, is, uh, mostly intact because it's just, it's a fun, it's a fun bit of, uh, way to bring the movie back together that these guys are friends again. But my point is that this is a movie about American greed and how two Jewish guys (laughs) will literally sign up with a neo-nazi who is completely insane and is on his roof talking I don't to think his he's a, if he knew hitler i think he's just a nazi he's just an og nazi <laughs> yeah yeah i mostly I mean, he say neo-nazi because there's a good bit in yeah. the the 2005 producers where a big light comes up a big like in broadway lights it says the new neo-nazi musical <laughs> which i think is very funny <laughs> um but you're right, you're right. I think he's just a, he's he's OG, he's just a Nazi, just the original shitheads. Not he the is new, so funny. Do you know formula. who? He's not. Do you know who was supposed? No, he. I mean, he, he is so funny throughout this entire movie. He is. Um, do you know who was supposed to play him? No, no, I missed this one. Uh, so Dustin Hoffman was cast, and uh, that's who was supposed to play him. And Dustin Hoffman literally said. Hey, I want to try out for this part of in the graduate. Can I go try out for it? And if I get the part, can I quit it? And Mel Brooks said, did not think he was going to get the part, and said sure. And he got the parts, and he had to had to drop out, which I think is. I um, I need an exact timeline on how this ends up with Mel Brooks being married to Anne Bancroft. Well, I mean, yeah, did not know. I mean, it, that's noted in a lot of the stuff. Like uh, that, obviously, Graduate has a, another funny thing about Anne Bancroft. Eventually, obviously, yeah. Marrying, um, um, real brief note on Mel Brooks. Uh, he his early career was, um, he was so obsessed with his work and he was making so little money that. Um, his uh wife his first wife before Anne Bancroft filed divorce uh remotely from him and he like got the notice in the mail and he was like I guess we're not married anymore like like that's that's the sort of like he doesn't talk about his first marriage very much because it sounds like they got married he became a workaholic for comedy they had no yeah. money and then she was like I'd like to get divorced so I can marry someone with like any prospects for the future and then uh, he met Anne Bancroft, who was the love of his life, and was married to for like forty years before she died. 
Uh, the other really funny casting thing is that uh, Mel Brooks initially uh, offered um, Leo Bloom to Peter Sellers. Mm, I heard this, yes. And he accepted and then never contacted them and was never, like, return any of their calls again. He said, I'll take the part and just never talk to them That's again. That's an extremely then... Peter Sellers move. <laughs> so that then... a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I know, uh, but but the he funny thing is, the is, movie in the end, he so. did help the movie. Like when he saw it, and people didn't want to show it, he like would go around and he ended up promoting it. But I think it's so funny to be like, oh yeah, that sounds great, and like they started working, assuming he would do it, and then like they could never get a hold of him again, and and they had to find someone else. Yeah, he was a he was a he was a big fucking dickhead that that checks out. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so. Uh, I, I think that this movie is a tale about American greed where they align yeah. with Nazis. It does leave an ugly taste in my mouth where they like also befriend a bunch of gay guys. And that seems like that's part of their like moral degradation is that they're like, Oh, I don't. So I, I think they just are like, he's the worst director in all of his plays flop. I actually, but everything don't think... they do is like they hire a, a fake secretary so that uh, Bialy can have sex with her. Like kind of every choice they make once they, they, they commit to the idea, basically every choice they make is based on like, what will get us exactly what we want in the most. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. But I think the fact that the director is gay is like, not why I I actually don't think they draw that line between he's terrible. I mean, they, they hire uh, LSD because he's, it's not like they're like, we'll even align with hippies. They just think he's fucking terrible and isn't like anyone else that like, that's on stage and doing yeah. other stuff. You're right. So. You're right. You're right. You could you could definitely align it more with the fact that they're like we found the dumbest beatnik. Yeah, <laughs> we found yeah. the dumbest beatnik in New York City. Well, just that he's not what people. If people are going to see a play about Hitler and he doesn't act or sound like everyone else that they're auditioning is like for the most part is dressed like Hitler is trying to sound like Hitler to a creepy like, degree. Yeah, and they're like, no, we want someone who no one will take seriously as Hitler, which is of course is there ultimate they 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 hired a terrible director and a terrible actor and they created camp as opposed to drama which is what it was meant to be where what's what the irony there is that um if they would have played it seriously like leapkin wanted it probably would have been they got a good actor to play hitler and it's this actual like you know uh real musical about how good hitler was it probably it probably would have succeeded but they were so like throw all the shit at the wind they accidentally invented comedy out yeah bialy has a line where he says he says like you know i did this and this and this he's like oh i don't know where i went right <laughs> yeah ex- exactly <laughs> it's 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 uh, it is also like talking about the two characters right um i think that mel brooks this is a this is a movie that's really weird because like they in the actual broadway version there's like a lot more meat on the bones in terms of like the trial and bloom is kind of underwritten in um bloom is kind of underwritten in the original film i think um especially just given you know hindsight of gene wilder yeah one of the funniest screen presences oh yeah because zero mostels over the credits like no one knew who gene wilder was but like they by the time the producers came out the 2001 you know musical version they really made it a two-hander like bloom runs away with ula 
and steals oh, him yeah. away from like <laughs> kind of it's, it's 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 a it's like a there's like multiple parts in the there's like a fourth or fifth act it's kind of it's kind of strange but like this is a movie that like bloom is kind of like the nervous sidekick to Bialy and uh Bialy's uh is driving the show so like anytime that there's a bad idea <laughs> bloom is maybe helping him feather the break but like yeah um there's there's very little um sort of like back and forth odd couple kind of bickering and then when mel brooks came back later he kind of turned it into that but like that's the only thing that i don't really like about this this version but yeah yeah i i feel like the sort of like the the one thing this is missing is that is very developed in the musical version is sort of the two-hander quality yeah um and i feel like that's that's one thing that like i kind of wish there's a third film adaptation before mel brooks is gone that sort of cuts the difference that's a Mm. that's a um has the filmic like actual vibrancy of this movie it doesn't have any of the flat tv movie grossness of the 2005 movie but it has all the songs and like the developed characteristics of the 2001 musical like i kind of wish that you could have like a a new version to cut the difference and and when before anybody says you know we don't need that or blah 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 um by anybody you mean me making like i'm gonna say something like that but like they literally i need to i need people to realize that like one of the only great capital g great musical adaptations of a stage play of the past 20 years was steven spielberg being like i'm just gonna do another west side story an idea that sounds fucking stupid as shit on paper i want them to do another producers that actually works as a musical and is vibrant and fun and lively but also like has the songs in it you know so i'm gonna make a case for that i was this is what i wanted to wrap up with um so we might as well kind of get there anyways because i know we're 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 nearly all the major things we need to say about this um i think that does exist kind of doesn't have all of it but actually my favorite adaptation of the producers after this movie is also is my i mean second favorite season of career enthusiasm Mm mm-hmm um uh the seinfeld one is my favorite that is such a goddamn good season all the way around but like the producer's arc is so good and they the the it's the only hour-long episode i think of curb i don't think the seinfeld one final one is maybe it's maybe it's the other one but like when he go when they so if you don't know the 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 thread of curb enthusiasm season four is that mel brooks has cast larry in a new version of the producers and the joke is that he did everyone's wondering why is larry why are you casting larry it's going to be larry and ben stiller and then larry pisses off ben stiller so much he quits and then ends up being larry and david schwimmer and i hate to say it, david schwimmer's pretty good <laughs> at playing it is um, so it is so funny it is it is yeah. it is so good that like before i was like more prone to googling things i guess that's yeah. also a post-trump thing like yeah. just googling everything um i just for i, I just took it as like sort of mental canon that he did the producers for a season. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause he's really good. And um, they have and like so, an actual like stage production going. Well, that's on, what I'm saying. Know? They do, they do do like, you don't see all the songs, but they have the big opening song. They have a lot of the scenes played out and you have David Schwimmer. Like what I'm assuming is doing what he would really do if he played 
uh, Leo Bloom on Broadway. He's, I mean, it, it's good. Like, it's actually pretty good for David Swimmer. But I think that arc is really funny. I think the production at the end, again, you're right. You don't get the whole thing. But, like, if uh, – and I like the twist of that – the whole – like, I love the the meta-textual components of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft casting Larry David so they could finally kill this fucking – show that's been a that's been a, a lodestone around their neck for the past six or seven years and they're shocked to find out that larry actually does a good job and they're like we're never gonna get rid of this fucking thing that's <laughs> it's so good like it is so good that that's uh se- season four episode 10 finale is probably uh maybe the 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 episode of curb i've watched the most because i love it so much so like i know it's not the i know it's not exactly what you're saying but i do think like if you're like, man, I wish they did a good adaptation of the musical version that everyone loved and not many people got to see, go watch Career Enthusiasm Season 4. It's great. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is absolutely where I was first exposed to most of the songs. And also, to be honest, most of the reason I watched the 2005 version was because I wanted to hear the songs in context. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to listen to a cast recording like after being so far away from the material. It just felt weird. And... Um, when I watched the 2005 version, I was like, there were moments where I was like enjoying myself because the songs are so good, but it's like this like pinprick of light standing out in this sea of darkness. The movie is not good. Um, and I remember, I remember Will Ferrell being funny. That's like a pivot point away from being great. Like you hire a different director, same, same, you know, script, maybe tighten up some, some of the, you know, maybe cut some stuff to get it under two hours. It's good. I I yep. think Will I think Will Ferrell is under directed. I think I, nobody knows what they're supposed to be doing in the film version, so everyone is just giving ten. And uh, some people should be giving ten, and some people should be giving five. And Will Ferrell is someone that should be giving five. Nathan I mean, the thing about it, that, that was that was Will Ferrell right before we all got sick of him for a few years, before everyone loved him again, too, so. you It, it is absolutely part of the math on why people were sick of Will Ferrell. Him coming in with a fucking Nazi helmet on and goose-stepping and shit, absolutely part of the math is uh, people being like, hey, I really love the producers. I really wanted to see a, a version of the producers, but I missed it on Broadway. Or I yeah. can't afford to go to, you know, Chicago or New York or whatever and, and see see a, a live cast production. I'm going to go see a movie version. And then yeah. Will Ferrell is goose-stepping around the stage. Like, no thanks. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I think I think we can wrap there. We're going to have a lot more Mel Brooks stuff to talk about. I, I, I really enjoyed this movie. And I knew I was going to enjoy it. Um... But I was surprised at how much I think I appreciated a lot more, and and from some of the notes you have, I think I appreciated the performances a lot more. I was, I think, probably when I saw this in high school, um, and maybe college, I was looking for the Mel Brooks laugh a minute gag style, which I've grown out of a little bit, um, and I appreciate a lot more the character work that both that that everyone's kind of doing and finding, like you said, there's a lot more comedic beats in. And there's also just jokes I didn't get. I love I love the joke where they're reading plays and uh, they throw one away about like uh, Kafka wakes up as a cockroach. No one's going to buy that. <laughs> like that. That is such a like a funny joke. 
throwaway joke that like I obviously didn't get because I didn't know what metamor the metamorphosis was. He says, um, "No, too good." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, it's uh it's it's really good. But yeah, I I and like again, finding out it was 88 minutes, I'm like, "Fuck, I'm going to watch this once every couple of years. This is amazing." It's so uh, also it's really hard to stream Two, yeah. I end up buying the Blu-ray because I was like, I have this Mel Brooks Blu-ray set, which I guess is now out of print because I went to go. I literally like, I, I don't want to look for it in my Blu-ray collection until I know it's in there because I don't want to spend all the time going through shelves. So I went and looked at it on Amazon to see which movies were included. I'm like, fuck, it's 250 bucks. Glad I got that for Best Buy for $20. Like, uh, so then, but it's it, like, you can't even like uh, buy it on digital. You can rent it. And I was like, I'm just going to buy the Blu-ray. Yeah, you can rent it in SD, which is what I ended up doing, because I was planning on buying a fancy new Blu-ray of it, and it was not a, an option. <laughs> oh, really? The Kino one's good. That's what I got. Yeah. It was on Amazon. Yeah. It's not Some helpful hints for, for listeners. Go, the Kino has a good version, uh, if P- Peter missed it. But hopefully you can be better at your Blu-ray searching on Amazon than, than Peter. Uh, but yeah, we're next week. We're gonna be tackling what, which one? Which one came out first? Blazing which one Saddles. are we doing next week? Because Blazing, Blazing Saddles. Part of the agreement then, Gene Wilder had was like, I've been working on an adaptation of Frankenstein that's kind of funny, and Mel Brooks is like, okay, 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 I'll work on that with you. But first, we gotta we gotta do this movie. Um, so Blazing Saddles is next, and Blazing Saddles is the namesake of this month. It's the movie that I think is probably the the most... Yeah, it's definitely the most transgressive movie this month. Um, And it is the movie that I think will be the spiciest. So what's crazy about all of these movies... I watched so much Mel Brooks in movies in junior high and high school. I don't know if I've seen Blazing Saddles in 25 years. I watched it six, seven years ago. I found it very funny. I found certain parts of it to be uh, a little, um, maybe, maybe Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor could have tightened it up a little bit. I don't know, but we'll talk about all that. It's got a very interesting production history, casting a Cleavon Little, Gene yeah. Wilder's involvement, the fact that Gene Wilder was not cast originally. Like there's a lot of interesting shit here. So we'll talk about that uh, next week. Awesome, yeah. On uh, which podcast? This one? Uh, we love to watch. All right, even better. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around, and then we found the man for you and me. And now.
born in Dusseldorf, and that is why they call me Rolf. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs> Mm. 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 <laughs> <laughs>